Uh, last week I made a joke how the first week was like the big hook, and then last week was the boring time, and that this week was going to be the speed round. Well, it turns out that might be true. <laughs> uh, thank you for sharing that with day camp. I know that with four years of camp under my belt at all, videos like that are always very special for the parents and the kids. So. I don't hold anything against you. I loved it. So, as with the last two times, I'm going to start with a picture from my time in Wisconsin. This is a sunset over Lake Owen. I got to look at that every night. And it only gets more and more beautiful. And anybody who has ever been at WWC leaves a part of themselves there. That that view, that beachfront on that lake, you stay there. A part of you stays there. And the only way I can describe it is, like, it's serenity. Being on that lake is just absolute serenity. It's beautiful. And I don't care if you take me all the way to the West Coast to see the sunset, no sunset will ever be a Lake Owen sunset. So, moving right along... Tonight, I finish up Titus. I, I'm tying up the loose ends. Not only am I tying up the loose ends, but uh, so is Paul. Uh, he wraps up the, some uh, key points, recaps on some things, and uh, I'm about to do the same because context, context, context. We need, it's always important to remember where you are, what you're looking at. And so we know that Titus was instructed by Paul to appoint elders over the Cretan church, and that their job was to refute, uh, ooh, typo, how about that, to refute false doctrine and establish sound doctrine. Uh, and last week, I discussed how Paul's MO, or his method, was top-down. Paul teaches Titus, Titus appoints and teaches the elders, the elders teach the people, the people teach each other, and by that, they build up the community within the church, and then also with outside the church. Chapter 3, uh, mo well, the first big portion of chapter 3 can be broken into uh, a logic statement, uh, and it, the way I looked at it, the way I studied it, I kind of had to pick apart different verses and essentially reorganize them so that we, uh, so that I came up with what I'm going to share with you right now. So we start with verse 3, uh, which is Paul's statement, his, his beginning point. And verse 3 says, At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. And so I listed the things that we once were. And Paul establishes this. He says, this is, where, this is where we start. This is where everyone starts. You, me, that guy, that lady, outside the church, inside the church, we all started here. We were all these things. But, Paul loves but. It, uh, it, he, always, he always has like a statement. He always goes, but... And he says, God saved us. 
He saved us out of mercy and grace. And uh, this stretches, this, this clause this, uh, to his initial statement stretches from verse 4 to 7. And it says, But when the, kindness of, when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing in, of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that when, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. The ones, the middle part in there, well, the middle part of the first sentence is a huge deal, and it's what is this is the centrality of the gospel is that God did not save us because of the righteous things we have done He saved us because of his mercy and grace. I read a book at the beginning of the summer called by Philip Yancey called what's so amazing about grace fantastic book I highly recommend it um, and it basically boils down to that grace boils down to that there's nothing that we can do to make God love us less and there's nothing that we can do to make God love us more. He just loves us. And because he loves us, he saved us. He saved us in this way. Here's the process. Uh, verses 5 and 6. The Father sends the Son. The Son pours out the Spirit, and the Spirit makes us new. We know that Christ was sent by God the Father. And then verse 6, it says, we, Christ pours out um, the Spirit. It says, by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through, Christ, through Jesus Christ. And then after, so God sends the Son, the Son gives us the Spirit, and then the Spirit takes us and washes us with rebirth and renewal. And that's how we're saved. It's through God's grace and mercy he makes this process occur. But only through our faith and our obedience. Not because of what we've done. And then we come to the therefore. Paul says, therefore do these things. So we started in verse 3, and Paul says, you were once these things. You were once against God in all these ways. But God saved you because of his mercy and grace. Because that happened, do these things. Therefore, do these things. We come back to verses 1 and 2. just realized I forgot to click. Therefore, do these things. Be subject to rulers and authorities. Be obedient. To be ready to do whatever is good. To slander no one. To be peaceable and considerate. And to, ha and to show true humility toward all men. These are things that we are to do. But it's not by any—it's because of the Spirit in us. It's because we are washed and made new in and through the Spirit that we are able to do these things. 
I'd like to take an aside on the first uh, thing that we are to do or be. And Paul says to be subject to rulers and authorities. And while at face value, we can look at this and it, it would, we just immediately think, oh, okay, so the government, state, you know, the commonwealth that we live in, the state government, the, the federal government, you know, whatever government, governmental system we find ourselves under, be subject to them, be agreeable. Uh, kind of like what uh, Paul talks about in uh, Romans. Romans, I don't remember the chapter specifically, I think it's 13. Um, but this part is why I saved verses 9, to t- 9 and 10 from chapter 2. is because it hails back to what Paul talked about in verses 9 and 10. He says, Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God and about God, our Savior, attractive. Slavery doesn't necessarily exist today. Well, not in the same capacity that it did uh, once upon a time. Not in the same capacity that we think of it, like we think Civil War and Abe Lincoln and all that. Uh, But the word slave is unique because... In certain, certain occasions, certain contexts in uh, ancient world, first century, is that it was a genuine prisoner of war. Somebody who, people who were conquered, they'd be taken out of their homes, and they might be a legitimate slave as we would think of them in, say, a king's palace. But oftentimes, and especially in Greek and Roman cultures, it's almost, uh, the word slave is almost synonymous with bondservant or bondslave. Now, a bondservant was a person who uh, more than likely was indebted to an individual. Uh, they were so indebted that they couldn't uh, monetarily pay off their debts. So what they would have to do is give themselves as a servant, as a slave, to this person and work X amount of years to equate whatever the money they owed. And when they would reach the end of those said years, they had the choice to go about their, go about their way, make a life for themselves again, or they could stay on board with uh, their master. The reason they would stay on board is because the nature of their relationship was contractual. Uh, the servant was brought into the house. It wasn't just like, well, here's, here's your dirty little quarters out back. No, they were, almost a, they were almost a part of the family. They were engaged in many of the activities, except they just uh, worked for the, the ma- their master. So it's contractual. They worked for their master, and their master provided food and shelter, and the promise that at the end of their time, they'd be free. A lot like our jobs, kind of. (laughs) Our jobs, we go to an employer, we make a contract with them. We say, we will give you this service, and in return, they promise to give us uh, money and benefits and whatever else we get. And it's it's in that same uh, idea 
that it's a contractual relationship between servant and master and employee-employer that we can find uh, application through this particular idea of being subject to rulers and authorities. Be subject to your employers. It's, you know, do these things that Paul says servants are to do and do it towards your employer. Now, my favorite part is why this has to do with you. I'm not going to make you ask, so what, this time. Oh, you chuckle now. Ah. Okay, so why this has to do with you. I made a little pun. This section, the way it works, is apologetical. And I made a little pun, apologetics, because Paul is phenomenal when it comes to this kind of stuff. I know, it's really cheesy, but I loved it. I couldn't pass it up. So this passage is great for explaining the gospel from start to finish. It shows us the human condition. It shows us how we can overcome that condition. It shows us our salvation. It also shows us the nature of God and, and how he exists as a, a trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, how they are three persons in one. And it also puts a high emphasis on grace over good deeds, over good works, that it's not about what we do, it's about our faith and our acceptance of God's grace and salvation. But it also has to do with reminding the people. Really straightforward. I, as I was studying, I wasn't sure where exactly I was supposed to go with this. And I kept reading, I kept reading, and verse 1 kept up, came up again and again. And it says, remind the people. I was like, oh, duh, remind the people. So here I am, reminding you. The things that Paul talks about in this passage are things that, in regards to our faith, are, they're things that my mom would call givens. Yes, my mom's laughing right now, because I, see mom, I pay attention. Um, they're givens. They're, they're givens. They, it's, you know, they're things that we learn and we should, that we typically know, uh, as Christians, we know that we're sinful. We know the, ma the nature and manner of our salvation. And we know what that salvation brings to us and what it does for us in terms of how we behave. And that leads into the things that we do. Paul says, remind the people of that. The reason he says remind the people of that is because these things are so elementary, they're so fundamental, that oftentimes we get, we forget. I'll put it to you like this. When I'm in school, and I'm in a theology class or something, and we're talking about the Trinity or uh, redemptive history or something like that, something that's very abstract and uh, has no real concrete answer to it, and everything's just getting convoluted with this theory and that theory and, you know, what about this, what about that? I walk out of—well, when class is over, I walk out, and I just think to myself, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. If, if all else fails, that's the, crux of, that's the crux of it all. That's what everything boils down to. And that's what Paul's saying. Remind the people of this. Remind the people where you came from, where you've been, 
where you are and where you're going, or where they should be going. Remind the people of this, Titus. And so, here I am, reminding you of these things. Do these things. The beauty of this passage, I find, is that, in a lot of passages in, in the Bible, is that they speak for themselves. The text speaks for itself in a lot of places, and this is one of them. So here, the text is speaking for itself. It says, remind the people, here I am reminding you. 